Today on Chase Wildly, I sit down with my mother, la madre. My mother gave me life, gave me skills, and gave me love. It has without doubt been the most challenging relationship of my life, full of fights, full of forgiveness, full of a growing understanding. And still, we find something new each time we're brave enough to open up and talk to one another. My mother is a force, and I was terrified to disappoint her growing up. She surrounded herself with powerful women and people, also who I was terrified to disappoint. She was always an example, though, in the positive of going toe-to-toe for what she believed was right in business, her creative pursuits, and in her community. Of course, as her son, I didn't always believe she was right. But she shined in nurturing, and she shined in the realm of compassion. And for this, I am forever grateful. She grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco. She got her anthropology degree from UC Berkeley in the midst of the hippie revolution. That said, she is a self-proclaimed domestic goddess. My friends referred to her as Mrs. Vegetables growing up, and she makes a banana cake that is so fucking good, it's been listed as a Schedule One drug. And now, I sit down with my creator. Let's go. I went home thinking, change? I mean, I could change something? I mean, I didn't have to recover from cancer and just step right back into everything I'd been doing like I had the first two times. You're on a radio show. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. We call them podcasts these days, though. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm great. Good. Yeah. Coming down from the holidays and ready to roll into the new year. Good. Did you set any New Year's resolutions? No, I never do. You never do? No. Nope. never have? Nope. Why not? It just doesn't seem worth the trouble. I just always have stuff to do, and stuff finds me, and I love doing what I do. And what are you doing these days? What I am doing is dancing. Mm. It's my favorite pastime now that I am not actively parenting, but I do actively grandparent, so I take frequent trips to um, help raise my grandkids. So dancing, visiting grandkids. You just finished building and designing a gorgeous dance studio Mm -hmm. so you're able to use that yep you have designed the home that our family lived in for we moved there when i was in high school um but it's it's absolutely gorgeous thank you 
You make quilts for every member of your family. I do. Um, I'd like to paint. You'd like to paint. Absolutely. You've been in ceramics classes the last week. Yes, I have. You were a yoga instructor. I was. You were aerobics instructor. I yeah. You were an assistant teacher. Yes, I was. You've been a therapist. Well, yeah, I got my master's. You got your master's in therapy, and and you you worked for hospice. Yep. And you uh, interned at the Hannah Boys Center, a center for for foster boys. How would you describe that? A residential center for boys. Okay, this mm -hmm. is a long list. We could probably go even further. We probably could. It sounds pretty good. Yeah, you're pretty <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um. And then you've raised ostensibly four boys, myself included. Yeah. My two stepbrothers who you came into the picture, half brothers, and you came into their picture at what point in their lives? They were teenagers. So mm -hmm. my influence was meh, not huge, but it was there. Why do you say not huge? Well, um, because I really didn't as a step parent in our parenting um, dyad have the right or the authority. And that's kind of typical as a step parent. You can speak about what you would like, what you would like to see, how you would like to set limits, but the biological parent has the last word. So you felt that you didn't have authority in their lives. Absolutely. And that was clear how? Well, it was clear because I would say, for example, um, I don't want the boys coming into the house without knocking on the door. And my husband said, no, it's okay if they walk in. This should be their house. I don't want the boys sleeping with their girlfriends in our house since we have young children. If they're not married and living independently. No, that's their house. Yeah. Okay. I see. So in the relationship, the dynamic between you and my dad, Gary, absolutely, you didn't have authority. And right. therefore, you couldn't even... Uh, approach authority with them exactly huh how was that frustrating frustrating i imagine <laughs> absolutely i imagine then you got your own shot with my brother and i oh boy and then i had all the say <laughs> <laughs> i probably made a few mistakes but you think so no maybe <laughs> should we start there oh my gosh if we have to no we don't have to <laughs> we don't let's circle back on that okay um, but, uh, I do want to, you know, I think it's important to say that this is a podcast that I hope to explore this question of what it means to become a man. Yes. And that's because that's a personal question that I have, but I think it's a question that many young men ask at some point in their lives, especially these days when there seems to be no consensus about what that means. Um, I can't help but say that growing up with you, there seemed to be a pretty clear rubric about what was right and what was wrong, what it meant to become a good human, perhaps, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that could mean everything from the way I was to manage my money mm -hmm. to the way I was to dress in certain places mm -hmm. or on certain occasions mm -hmm. to the way to hold my fork at a table. Oh, yeah. Um, so could you tell me where 
your rubric came from? Where did, when you went into parenting, where did you pull from to decide this is how I'm going to raise my sons? Right. Well, I pulled from my own experiences, obviously, but I don't feel I had the greatest relationship with my parents. I don't feel that as a young woman, I had the parents that got me. And so I pretty early on began to make choices and realized that parenting and growing up period was always a choice. Um, so when I had my children, I used every book available. Um, developmentally, I would go for what's happening with an 18-month-old. What would be happening in the next six months? What are they doing that I'm not understanding? So that I could, without the communication adult to adult, be figuring out what was normal and appropriate for you, you know, as a person, so that I related to you as well as I could. That said, um, in terms of manners, in my house, once a week we had to sit down and have proper table manners and a lesson each week on a different thing how to use a napkin, how to deposit your used napkin on the table, etc., etc. So it was, um, it was instilled into me. And what I distilled it to for you was I'm trying to give you a toolkit with everything you will need to live in the world wherever you choose to live. So if you wanted to live at the highest echelon, traveling the world to meet with important business people, to transact this and that over a dinner at a fancy restaurant, you would not choose the wrong bread plate. You would know what to do so that there was nothing that anyone could ever say that would catch you not in a position of strength. Um, that's pretty much it. So your toolbox had everything from French when you were little, music, education all the way through high school, you know, a few dance lessons, a few dinner parties when you were in middle school to practice. And, and basically, as you got older, it was important to me in my <clears throat> boundary setting, curfew setting, to again reinforce you are going to be in the world pretty soon and you need to practice behaviors that will make an appropriate adult in the world so <clears throat> much to your detriment or disappointment um, you couldn't have sleepovers uh, on a friday night with the whole crew because that's not usually what adults do and so there were a lot of those um rules I had that came in conflict with how the new generation was allowed to behave. But mine was based on trying to um, socialize you to the laws of our country, the rules of our house, and then the opportunities life might throw your way. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. I yes. think you're pretty terrific too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean that in I feel like I entered into the world of adults with uh, with a fantastic skill set, you know, and, yeah. and toolkit, as you put it. Um, 
And that's a great way to look at it. You know, there are skills that we can give to to people, whether it's a way of speaking or which bread plate is the right one to use. Um, but to enter into a subculture and excel or connect, to be able to connect, mm -hmm. not seem too much like an outsider. Exactly. Um, so you did very well there. Where do you think you made mistakes? I wasn't going to bring up mistakes, but you already <laughs> brought it up. Well, mistakes. Um, you know, it's hard for a parent with more than one child, or maybe even just one child, to really know what is right for that child. And I say that because that's how I felt about my parents. They didn't get me. And the other thing, to back way back, babies are absolutely so observant that in my opinion, they get their parents by the time they're six months old. They know when to cry too much. They know the parent that's going to come get them. They really have you figured out such that, and because they love you and don't want to disappoint you, they tend to know what you need and give it to you. Know what you don't want in their behavior and not do it often. Not exclusively because some kids are that way, but, but I feel that until, until and unless parents understand how closely children observe them and know the rules, they know what to do. Um, the parents must also look into the ch children at a very young age because, frankly, by the time a child is about 11, um, it's time for the parent to become so interested in that child and everything they're doing and support what they want because, honestly, that child has been supporting everything the parent wants for the first 11 years. Everything, grades in school, how to dress, when to behave, yes, they go to church. When they start rebelling in adolescence, that truly is the time for the parents and the greater community to take an interest in the child. And so what if I didn't like skateboarding? I should have figured it out. Maybe that was a mistake. And, and so what if I didn't want you to play football? Maybe I should have let you at an older age, but before high school. So there were certain things that I didn't get, including... It was simply the rule that you would take music education till you graduated from high school. And I think that one of my mistakes might have been to not see the pressure that you felt. Although, because you were compliant and did it, and did it well and excelled, um, I felt it was worth it because when you went to college and we're trying to get into a college and could send a tape showing you you got into college so you know it's very hard for a parent to know when to really stop unless they're in touch with their child and their child is willing to be open to them and really say man this is not working for me how would that communication go if we did it again Mm, wow, how would that go? Um, 
Because, right, we had our battles. Well, yes, we did. <laughs> oh, yes, we did, especially when you got taller than me. That was tough. Um, how would that have gone? I think... I think I don't have a clue because, I mean, this is a 2020 thing. Um, I think if I were to... It's it's hindsight, yeah. Yeah. And if I had the opportunity to have children again, I probably would have said, okay, Gary, we're going to be doing this and that through these years, and then we're going to make the kids make the decisions. And when they balk and they don't really want to because it's kind of easy still for mom and dad to enforce it so much easier, um, we might just have had to say, no, sorry, mm-hmm. you have to do this. Because, again, practicing how to confront other people about things you believe in is an adult skill that I don't think most parents encourage their children to do. Practicing how to confront... Practicing confrontations. Yeah, practicing confrontations. And asking for what you want. Well, and most parents don't know how to teach that to their children because most parents don't know how to do that themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Including me. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think of our family as one that, in a lot of respects, was conflict avoidant. Absolutely. Um. And, you know, we won't talk about people that aren't in the room, but, (laughs) (laughs) oh, let's, Uh, your your relationship with dad. Mm -hmm. Dad is uh, a a wonderful human being and a very successful human being, but he's also the type of person when he doesn't get his way, he takes his ball and he leaves. He leaves, yeah. Um, And that was the model, I think, of conflict Mm -hmm. in our home. Mm Mm-hmm. If you didn't like something, well, you shut down or you go away you or got you quiet. just disengage or you get quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably the same for many families. Mm-hmm. And also, I or think... Or the, the opposite. Yeah. I think it's also based on the fact that when people are confronted, when they feel defensive, some people more than others totally flood emotionally. And I think in the case of our family, that is why there was a necessity to escape, leave the room, not even do anything because the emotions were so fast and furious that sometimes it would take days to get over or come to grips with or even begin to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think in our relationship for the past couple of years anyway, um, I have taken more responsibility to in the moment say what I feel, even if I shout it, and then follow up or let go. Moreover, okay, I've said it. Okay, I've said it. I don't expect you to change, or um, I don't expect to get my way, but at least I've said it. That's it. And it's amazing how that has helped both of us disengage from conflict, allowing each of our opinions to be heard and either making a decision or not, but at least not feeling so emotionally uh, tense about things. Mm-hmm. It's been a very good thing. For you and my dad, for you and exactly. Pops, yeah. mm-hmm. And I think if you and your brother were in the room seeing more of it, you would have learned 
oh, it's okay to just pop off. It's okay to just blow off a little steam. It's not going to frighten or disrupt or um, jeopardize the whole family. And I yeah. think there was more of that, oh, my God, there's a volcano rumbling. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That 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 threat of volcano was worse than many eruptions. Exactly. Right? Um, and also on both sides, on the sides of, of those tiptoeing around the volcano mm -hmm. and for the volcanoes. Yeah. Because, you know, when the volcano went, mm -hmm. it went big. Mm -hmm. And not in... Um, not in any abusive way, no. but in, in, as a child, a scary and unbridled right. seemingly way. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. Those mini eruptions can be a good, a good lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, the right way to conflict. Yeah. I'd say another thing we didn't do particularly well in our parenting was, um, in terms of discipline, you just reminded me, the volcano. If you and your brother did something wrong, spilled milk, some little teeny thing, your father might just blow off and say, you're on restriction for, you know, fill in the blank, mm -hmm. which was so inappropriate for the crime, mm -hmm. such that over time, I really took on more of the the discipline, the role, this is what's going to happen, this is the punishment for the crime, to make it appropriate for your age and for what happened and all of that. And I don't know that it was right just to shut your dad out because I think it would have been better for us to have argued in front of you, wait a minute, you just spilled the milk. That's not worth that. Just make him clean it up. Mm -hmm. You know, and if there was more of that, again, that would have taught you that making mistakes is a part of growing up and somebody blowing up because they had a day is a part of life. And we all settle down again. Yeah. We missed a lot of the settling down. Yeah. Well, in not communicating, you miss a lot of opportunities. Exactly. <laughs> One of my the greatest lessons I learned being a mom was when I, um, the first time I got mad at Justin, your older brother, and he went off to take a nap, and boy, I was mad. And he woke up and... He was sweet and cuddly, and boy, I was still mad. Yeah. And that's when I learned, oh my gosh, it's okay to just go away and let it go. And so that was the first lesson. The second lesson was I had to apologize. And anytime you apologize, you bring it up. You bring whatever came up, and you have that opportunity to talk, to fix, to say, gee, how was it for you? I'm going to really try not to do this again, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So. Yeah, then you have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that just as a dog owner. That that it's a practice, right? <laughs> it to, is. Something just pisses you off so much. Yeah. And then it comes back to you, this mm -hmm. thing or this child or this dog, and they've totally forgotten it. And yeah. it makes you realize how much you keep yourself in that place. That's right. When the thing has passed, the thing is well in the past. And yet, you're still living it. You're still stuck in the mindset. Right. Spiraling. Yeah, and it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, my brother and I, um, well, what do I want to say? I want to I ask, 
Oh, come on, just say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what were your uncertainties or your doubts about raising boys versus raising girls? Oh, my gosh, everything. Um, My parents divorced when I was very young. I lived with my mother and my sister, just the three of us girls, for, you know, most of my life. Um, I had you when I was 29, so for basically 24 years, I was just a a part of a female tribe, um, doing all female things, hair things, and sitting around, and chatty things. and, um, And yet, I was not... Um, I was the outlier in my little family of three. And I was much more the tomboy. But what was frightening? Everything. Um, The first thing I thought of when your brother was born was, I have a son. I could lose him in a war. So my first sense of having a son was, I will lose him. Um, And then... It was just how different you were in the most wonderful way because my experience with girls growing up so often are the little nasty comments and they're so um, competitive and mean to each other and not direct. Let's just say this. Most girls are not direct. They will maneuver, manipulate, do all these things. Whereas boys, they just get up and they're loud and noisy and they jump and they need space and they need to get dirty. And there's so much more of the five senses than girls who seem much more kind of in their heads about things, really. I love that about you guys. Yeah. Uh, made it really easy to go play and do things. And I remember when we would have play groups, and I always had boys and kids around so you could run amok. And uh, also so I could just have some time because you didn't need me. <clears throat> One time you invited a little girl to come up. The entire time she's in the kitchen with me. Could we bake something? Could we do something? Could we? And I went out of my mind. because I just wanted you to play and me to be able to do stuff and it was a whole new ballgame I think that's when I really realized what a gift having boys were but then there's this responsibility what do I have to teach a boy Um, my obligation was to be the kind of woman that I don't know, fill in the blanks. They'd want to marry. They would um, find us a good example for companions that that I would be an intelligent woman so that you would um, look for or appreciate intelligence, um, that I was a team player. I don't know. There was just uh, a lot of that. Because I was the one female in then a family of five males, um, events could be pretty... uh, active, high energy, lots of testosterone. Um, I got along as best I could, but uh, it affected me in little ways. Instead of taking more time getting dressed for an event, showing you that you need to allow your woman to take more time to be more feminine, I would get ready in 10, 15 minutes and be out the door. Um, 
and that's part of me as a get-along person and maybe not as much um, giving you the model of a woman that you needed because I think the value in having two parents is the estrogen and testosterone, is our relationship, how we as adults relate together, which allows you to get an example, only one, of how you can partner with a member of the opposite sex or or your own sex, but in a companionable relationship to create that kind of lifetime partnership. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would have been nice to see that too. I mean, as I grew older in my 20s, you know, and I would look at your interactions with my dad, I would think how... Um, how assertive you were in so many realms of your life and yet how in certain ways with him mm -hmm. you weren't. Right. And, and specifically like when he wanted to go somewhere, it was time to go. He was in the car waiting, mm -hmm. you know, not appreciating you getting ready, not giving you that time, not giving you that space. Mm -hmm. um, and you really just going along with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it would have been lovely to see that, uh, that, that sort of that power and assertiveness in that context. Um, I have that problem in my own relationship mm -hmm. now where I, yeah, it drives me absolutely nuts when I'm waiting for her mm -hmm. and, and I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> you were too quick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, that's the example. We get mm -hmm. used to whatever we see in right. the relationship that's, uh, that's around us. Um, now I want to ask about rites of passage mm -hmm. and what it meant for you, for us to approach manhood. Mm-hmm. And, and we could see that as a number of different things. Maybe that to you was, was graduating from high school, or maybe it was starting to shave, or maybe it was someplace mm -hmm. after that. But what did that mean to you as a mother? And how did you, if at all, try to navigate us through that? Yeah. So I had a couple of rituals. And um, the first was shaving. We, we took pictures, we made a big deal because there were no rituals for men. There weren't short pants to make long, etc. There was no, you call the Mrs. So-and-so until you get permission. So we had that. And the other one that I did that I just kind of remembered in this moment is when I got the first sense that you were going through puberty, your brother and you, I would, I had this wonderful book and it talked about what's happening to my body with appropriate pictures because you were pretty young, both of you. And I basically made the opportunity for your dad to take you out when I did it with Justin and Justin when I did it with you. We would just sit and read through the book until it got somewhat uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And uh, at each opportunity, there was a time. And so it's like, well, you know, this book now can just sit here and when you want to learn more about it, you will. And that was the beginning of privacy for you, which I think was something 
I tried to give you as part of your manhood. You now can have some privacy. You don't have to read this. You can read this. You can shut your door and I will knock. Um, I will try not to walk in on you. The other thing that happens naturally is in our house, um, maybe this is TMI, but we showered together. We had no problems with being naked together until that one time when you in particular, um, I felt it was time to stop because I felt we weren't just in the shower, but you were noticing my body in a way that appropriately a boy becoming an interested adolescent would. And therefore, it was time. So what that means is, right back to when my first son was born, there's a time when you will lose your son, that precious, adorable, cuddly person. And as a mom, you have to stand back and respect that space. And you can still hug, but um, you might hug differently. You might kiss differently. You give space for that person to develop the erotic kinds of um, body contact and expressions with other people that, that aren't appropriate with the mom. Mm-hmm. So those were all very, um, um, well, they were looked for. I looked for them. When I saw them, I acted, and then things changed. Um, I think those are the those are the most important real events, and then the rest was trying to um, again still have behavioral conversations about what's appropriate and inappropriate, just socially without putting restrictions on you um, in terms of your behavior or when you became sexually active or all those magazines we eventually found under the bed. Oh, you boy. Know. I know. Oh, boy, boys. And then you regretted having boys. Well, <laughs> I never regretted it, but it was certainly certainly a, a heavier load. Yeah. You know, it was heavier. Well, this your stories are very uh, moving for me even. You know, you had a perspective of the process I was going through which I didn't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you're going through that process, you're so unaware of your own mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in that period of puberty, they begin to happen so rapidly. You're not even sure who you are and what's what. And um, and so uh, well done navigating that. What- you know, the other thing that just reminded me, we, we called that time period... Um, I don't know, 10 to 15, something like that. The evil twin syndrome. Because it was a way for me to help let you know that you, I perceive you to be feeling a little out of control. And this isn't the way that my son behaves. So it must be the evil twin who has just taken hold of your body. And it allowed us For example, one day I remember taking you to school. Goodbye, goodbye, see you later, see you later. Get in the car, hi. What happened? Nothing, etc. Oh, I think the evil twin must have just taken you over. Why don't we talk about this when they're not there? Hmm. And it's sort of by taking a third person 
um, look at what was going on or putting it on a third person, it allowed you to be the evil twin and not to take yourself back mm -hmm. and not to find who you were in that mess of adolescent mm -hmm. hormones, I think. I, I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, my initial response to that is how could you? Oh. From the standpoint of, well, that evil twin was me too. So how dare you call it evil? How, how dare that part of me be relegated, especially mm -hmm. in this house where so much emotion wasn't allowed? Mm -hmm. um, That's a good insight. Mm, see, there's another mistake. Well, we're <laughs> learning, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is 2020. And as we said, we were both in those moments doing the absolute best we could and we knew. Um, but yeah, I wonder what, because I've struggled so much in my twenties and thirties now with theoretically the evil side of me uh -huh. with not loving and accepting the anger, the depression, the dissatisfaction, the being down mm -hmm. and, and so much self-loathing comes in around that instead of me feeling like I'm allowed to have a bad day or mm. be a grump mm -hmm. or so I think there's it's a thin line right as we become adults we have to be able to allow ourselves also to be a grump sure and I almost think when we when we push it away it comes it becomes something even stronger so we have to have that relationship with those things where just like the volcano, we allow them to happen. Mm -hmm. We allow them to affect our relationships. Mm -hmm. And then we recover in relationship from that instead of relegating that. Um, but I, I don't even remember these interactions about the evil twin. It's just... Isn't that funny? It's, uh, it is. I mean, I don't remember the, the discourse. I don't remember that being a part of, of my life. Yeah. But obviously it was. Yeah. Wow. And I wonder if it would have been any better or more palatable if it wasn't called the evil twin or just the other brother or the the something, because I right. truly do believe that we are like a bag of M&Ms and every color is a different part of ourselves, the good, the bad, the ugly, the yeah. nasty, the sweet. And, um, and yes, we do have to, we spend our adult life integrating what our adolescence throws into us and, mm. and makes us painfully aware of all those feelings. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk, to circle back on, on your answer about rites of passage, mm -hmm. um, because usually there's a tribe, or not usually, evolutionarily, yep. there was a tribe, a community, a small group of people, and a consensus about what happened when someone entered adulthood. A woman, a girl going from the, the children's group into the group of women. Mm -hmm. And a boy going from the children's group into the group of men. And in some cultures, uh, a, a few different hunter-gatherer societies, there was this process in which when a man returned from his rite of passage, he would be greeted by the mother as a stranger. Mm. And I think we've talked about yes, this before. Uh -huh. And um, you talk about that a little bit in this way that 
in that way, it was very regimented. You know, the boy would change where he lived. They would change what they called each other, how they saluted each other, you know. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that. We change how we hug a little bit. We change how we kiss a little bit. We change if the men and the women are showering together or not showering together. And, and yet you did this all alone. When you tell this story, it sounds very lonely. I mean, it was you reading to your boys about mm-hmm. puberty. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you had support in this process? Did you feel like you had community to help you through it? Well, um, let's see. I would say I didn't feel lonely, but I felt solitary. And that's not something that was unfamiliar to me. What was difficult was that your father wasn't comfortable talking to you about these things. And, you know, I'm a default second. I'm doing my best to talk about guy issues. I mean, I remember talking to you about things like how to deal with girls if you see them, if they've had their periods, if... If you've gotten an erection, always bring a binder or a loose shirt. I mean, I was trying my best <laughs> to help you navigate <laughs> adolescence, um, for, but only like from a woman's perspective. But um, I suppose I only wanted more for you. I wanted more for you from men, and I didn't have that. I didn't have that to give you because your dad couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I did it the only way I knew how, yeah. which was, let's sit down and talk about masturbation. Let's mm-hmm. sit down and talk about how different that is from pleasing a woman sexually. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not sure I had that conversation with you, but I did have it with your brother. Oh, God, I remember those. Man, they were miserable. <laughs> For both of us. <laughs> oh, joy. I'm sure you got much more information from your friends, but I was, for example, I was not going to let you go to school on the day they had the film about sex and not know what they were going to do. Because frankly, when I grew up, my mother never told me anything. And I went in there, saw the film, and was horrified in front of all my peers. Mm -hmm. Who knew much more? I was just not going to, again, about the toolkit, let you walk into something that could be emotionally painful or a surprise. Mm -hmm. You weren't ready for Yeah. Yeah, you talked about wanting there to be men, other men to help out. Why is that important? Because if I look at a glass, I can see it half full and somebody else could see it half empty. It's as simple as that. We all have a different viewpoint to share. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the adult in our culture needs to critically think about what they see in their own families and other people's families and make choices about who they want to be. They can, you can construct yourself. Yeah. You can take parts from your parents, parts from other people, parts from a teacher in school, parts from a neighbor. And ultimately, my thing is about evolving into the best human being you can be. Whatever mistakes I have made as a parent or as a person, I would hope for you 
you would improve upon. Mm-hmm. And or if you ended up just like me, it'd be okay with you too. Yeah. But if it means something to be better, please go ahead, do it. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's also a lot of value in finding someone who you can at least be with, sit with, maybe even talk with, who has shared that experience, who yes. can actually understand it. I mean, I think this is the power of all the women's groups that we see, you know, is that there are certainly things I will never fathom about being a woman. Absolutely. I can conceptually understand, mm-hmm. but I will never viscerally experience what a woman feels just walking down the street Mm -hmm. and there are things that a woman will never viscerally experience that a man has experienced Mm -hmm. and will experience someone in, in a male's body with a male's anatomy and um i think that's why it's important and i think it's also important because we learn, just like you said, we have more options to learn from. Mm-hmm. You know, if there had been a tribe of men to model myself after, and certainly there were, but they weren't hand-selected mm-hmm. in the same way. And and with dad being a very busy guy and, and being one model and not confronting some of these things face-to-face, you know, I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And I think that we tend to learn more effectively or or just period from those people that are like us in that way. I think so. I certainly had a mentor when I first went to work and she was amazing and um, beyond me in almost every direction. So gave me the opportunity to grow in many directions under her influence, not guidance, just in the environment. And I think that's what you're saying, is the environment we put ourselves in, we absorb so much from. And when we can choose that environment, it's even more powerful. I think what we're talking about here in terms of the raising and the men and women is the difference really between compassion and empathy. I can have all kinds of compassion for a man, but empathy is really about having experienced what you have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I can never do that any more than you can. But we can build on the compassion we have for people and then throw in a lot of forgiveness for what we ourselves can't understand. Yes. Yes, we can. And, And there may be, maybe there's not a limit to how close we can get. With compassion towards mm-hmm. empathy, mm-hmm. but there is an effectiveness that almost seems automatic when empathy exists. Exactly, and, and that's why I was, tr- as I was trying to say it, it it's almost just sitting with someone who you know knows, mm-hmm. in their cells knows, mm-hmm. and so few words need to be spoken when that exists, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, what, which we feel in any empathetic situation. In any good relationship, there is a lot of silence. Mm-hmm. comfortable, peaceful silence. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me it makes me wonder, just broadly speaking, about what's lacking today 
I mean, one of the reasons I want to start this project, I'm starting this project, is because I look at the tribe of men mm -hmm. in the world and I don't like what I see. I don't see a lot of mentors that I respect. I don't see men gathering in ways that, that I like. Mm -hmm. And I mean that historically, I think it's starting to happen, mm -hmm. but it, it didn't feel like it was there growing up. Mm -hmm. And the absence of mentorship or apprenticeship, um, we just had each other as mm -hmm. adolescent young men. So we went to, as 14 year olds, we went to 17 year olds for that. Exactly. How crazy is that? Right. <laughs> which isn't good, which explains mm -hmm. a lot about why men don't tend to grow up much. Exactly. When historically, you know, perhaps in, in these more tribal settings, the group of men was a group of men. They acted with certain values and moral integrity and in line with, with the, the rubric of the community. And there were also expectations. I don't think there are a lot of expectations for people in our culture, no matter what sex. I think, you know, the other thing that you experienced that you loved was scouting. Because scouting gave you time with other boys, other fathers. Like in the Boy Scouts. Boy yeah. Scouts, yes. Uh, although, um, much to my disappointment, um, most of your scouting masters were women. That was something that began to change. Um, you know, 30 years ago. And that was really too bad because boys needed to head out with men. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of women may be outraged at that, at hearing that. Well, they may be, but again, I can't give all those. I can teach boys to do knots. I can teach boys all kinds of things, but I can't show them how to rough up against a guy or a bear or, you know, figure things out via testosterone instead of. Yeah. Especially, especially in that phase of life. I think this That's is right. crucially important too. that phase of life in which the mere presence of a woman entirely changes the dynamic for a man. I couldn't agree more. Entirely changes our focus, our actions, Everything, as mm -hmm. soon as we enter into that phase and, and begin responding in that very primal, mm -hmm. unbridled way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I hope you come up with something really good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Well, this is to ask, you know, what are the questions that we need to ask? I mean, I think the other one, the other reason I'm doing this is because it seems like mental health is such an issue amongst men. And, um, and men even more so than women in a lot of cases, if we look at suicide rates and things like that. And uh, it, it makes me wonder where the gap is there. I would have to um, be curious about suicide rates because are we talking about attempts or completions? Mm -hmm. um, I think many women attempt suicide, but they usually choose a means that is not as effective as some that men, they usually choose pills or something where a man might get a gun. Mm -hmm. You know, one is going to be more effective if you try it once. Yeah. Um, but, um, and then I just lost my thoughts, senior moment. No, that's fine. If someone's listening and they have the statistics on that, let me know. I'll look it up. I remember you and I went to the conference and watched Terry Real talk. 
Right. And Terry Reel had some a list of statistics that that outlined this disparity. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to go get it because I think it's important for all of us to have these facts. Mm-hmm. But um, it seemed like there was some sort of disparity happening or progressing in that direction towards where men were suffering. Exactly. And all the women in the room will hate to hear me say that from the time of the women's movement, there has been a bias against men. A bias such that now we don't have as men going to college, we don't have as many men supporting households, we don't have as many men staying in marriages, because I think to some extent or another, and that's a not a statistic, it is an opinion, I feel that men have been marginalized and I don't know if it's women, our society in general, or who doesn't want men to rise up, be strong, and be present in all those aspects of life. Mm-hmm. All those aspects of life. Yes, we need your discipline in the home. Yes, we need your guidance. Yes, we need you to override now and then. Yes, we need you to compromise. We need you to be educated. We need you to work. Yeah. And to flip-flop our society such that men used to do all that and women just stayed home with the kids. And now men do whatever they do. And are women doing it all? I don't think so. But the balance is clearly not good for our culture, in my opinion. Yeah. And And for our boys. And I, I can imagine some people saying, well, women have been marginalized for centuries. Why is it bad that men do for a while? For a while, because for a while becomes generations. And if women have been marginalized, there are a number of reasons I don't even want to begin to um, give for why that has happened, but it was a balance in the society. I don't think that a proper balance is to give it just over to women. I think the balance has been lost in that men should give some, women should take some, and give off. So, I mean, there's a balance to be achieved, and the problem is I don't think people are really looking for that. I think think those who look at the world in a sexist view feel that women are more this, that, and the other. Maybe women survived all those years because they're smarter, you know, and they put up with it because at some level they could figure most things out. You know, and their men, before technology, we needed the brawn. We needed what they could do. Um, we still need each other desperately, but I think yeah. we're so far away from each other mm. that that's what's going to have to be in your equation of how we raise our boys, give them back their confidence that's been pulled out from under them, and treat them with respect for what they bring to the table. Yeah. I I mean, I think you nailed it when you said you alluded to the fact that the two are inseparable, the status of women and -hmm. and the status of men and have been throughout history. And I know in my own experience, you know, this is why it's important to have my mother on and other women on, especially women who have raised boys or lead men, because, because this... Every man who grows up with a woman grows up with some wounds or traumas related directly to his mother or grows up 
additionally with this model of how the mother was treated by the father. There you go. So this man has guilt or shame or resentment or anger or rage based on the relationship with the first woman he knew. Mm -hmm. And he's going to take that into every interaction that he has with every woman until he figures that shit out. Yeah, sadly. Yes. And so unless we're also attacking the problem of masculinity as a responsibility of, of both the man and the woman, whoever isn't responsible for young boys, mm -hmm. then it's not going to be fixed because I know my relationship, every resentment I have towards a woman, sadly, is a result of our relationship. Oh, gee. Oh, boy. Yeah. You know, or some other significant woman in my life from an mm -hmm. early age mm -hmm. or my traumatic relationships that mm -hmm. happened in, in earlier in life, um, earlier in my, my, you know, relating dating. to women, yeah. dating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but not that that's not to put pressure on you. This isn't a conversation of blame, but this is, seems to be how it works. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a Freudian. I don't love Freud who thought everything was about the mother, but I think it makes pretty clear sense that most of the ways that we treat women has to do with our relationship of our mother. Those patterns that baked in, those beliefs that got baked in, like you said, in infancy before we even knew what was happening. And that could be if it's the result of neglect, mm -hmm. certain resentments, if it's the result of smothering, other resentments. And that's all going to affect it. So we need this to be not men versus women, but men and women for a better society. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I agree. Now, I was not a feminist feminist, obviously, but the one thing I did feel as your mother I wanted you to do was learn, again, part of the toolkit, the rules of and the chores of a household. You and your brother did dishes, you learned to do wash, you learned to iron, you learned to do all those things because my hope for you in your relationship was that you would be able to share chores if that became something important. You would be able to share work, share chores, share the responsibilities of your life um, because now it seems it's much more negotiable. Uh, than it was when I was growing up. There wasn't a sense that, oh, you can choose this, that, or the other. Mine was a buy-in. Yours was a buy-in. What do you mean? Oh, well, um, when your father and I decided to get married and have children, we decided I would not work. Hmm. Now, you listed off a whole bunch of things I've done, um, and they do qualify as work and time spent, but it was that I wouldn't go to a job, pursue a career, and really just dedicate all that time, that, that my time would be dedicated to raising your children because your dad and I both believe that our children are our future and that what I did at home was as of as much value or more so than what he was doing at work, mm -hmm. getting money. So um, although it may seem that I just stayed home and said yes, yes, yes a lot, I was also in charge of what I thought was something very important. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here talking with my own mother. Yes, you are. And, you know, you 
had a relationship with your own father. Oh, yeah. And so if I'm going to look at this relationship with you, I'm going to ask you also to look at that relationship with him and see if we can see these same patterns coming down the line. I mean, what... I don't, I'm not asking you to relate it to me, yeah, yeah. but what was your relationship like with him? Well, uh, I didn't have a good relationship with either of my parents. Um, my father really wanted a boy, and I tried very hard to be a boy in my little growing up phase that I mm-hmm. talked about before. My observance was on what he needed. He wanted me to sail or ski. He wanted me to climb trees. He was proud of me when I won races. And everything about me was dedicated to being a boy until I couldn't pass as one anymore. Um, And yet, um, my father was really just interested in whatever he wanted. And I think he was um, pretty inept at raising girls especially as a divorced father, um, uh, because he totally didn't get his three daughters. (laughs) Um, So no, I didn't have a closeness there. When I went to choose a husband, I probably picked somebody who was pretty interested in what they want to do. Similar in that way. Very similar in that way, yeah. but somebody who really loves and cares about me deep down much more than my father ever did. So it might be a differentiator that you didn't notice growing up, Mm -hmm. but at the times when our marriage got very difficult, and it has two or three times, um, going back to our beginnings um, and finding that again in the person I'm with... um, is what's kept us together. Finding what exactly? that? It's whatever your special juice is. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, it was sort of the thunderbolt that got us together. It was the wedding day that was just perfect. It was, you know, having you two, which was just something that I wanted so much that he gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's a much better man for having done it. And... I think, again, because of that juice that still flows through us, I am able now to become the fiery Aries I always should have been mm-hmm. and just do things my way when I want it and have him go, oh, my gosh, you don't, oh, and yet having it all be okay. And, you know, the, oh, gosh, is maybe it would have been okay 30 years ago too. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know either. Yeah. It's funny you say that because in your relationship with me, mm-hmm. I've always experienced you as the fiery Aries who does mm-hmm. what she wants. Yeah. But I think that with him, yeah. maybe you had more of that carryover from your relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Um, exactly. But I've definitely seen more of that come out. Mm-hmm of you in all the relationships of your life, even with your friends. Oh, yes. And you know, it's funny. We've talked about who influences us. Um, I have a friend, Jean, and 25 years ago, we met around the creation of this school, that charter school in Sonoma. And I remember meeting her thinking, oh my 
God, the way she's talking to her husband and to my husband. Oh, my gosh. And then pretty soon it was like, oh, my gosh, why aren't I doing that? And that gave me an impetus to start finding my own way and my own voice. Um, she was the most outstanding, but, but there are a couple of other people, women and men in my life, who I have suddenly realized, okay, I'm with you for this little ride because I'm learning more about me in a certain regard or another. Um, and it's all been good. So I really think that, uh, that's a key for young people. I mean, some people call it a formal mentoring relationship in school for young people. That's always good. But I really think that adults, and we're talking the 20 year olds need to, as part of their growing up, look for and find people and question why you're with this person. And like, what is, what can I learn from this person? Yes. Um, what can I learn from them? So follows from, God, I really seem to be attracted to seeing this person once a week, or mm -hmm. I really look forward to them. Why is that? Um, will this be a long-term relationship? I wonder, you know, because you're either in it for life. I have my friend Laura from third grade. You're in it for a season. You know, I've had a lot of friends only while raising you guys. And when you all went to college, we all dropped off or for a reason. And the reason is what, as we're older, we get more friends who come in a work situation, in a community service situation, in some kind of situation that we're going to hang together and do something together. We're going to stimulate each other. We're going to have a knockdown drag out at the end to teach us something, or we're going to watch each other in action and learn because that's what we want to be a little more of. Yeah. Beautiful. It's all about projecting, right? We project onto others things in ourselves. They're probably things we want to work on. Either we want to change, stop, or, we want more or of. realize. Yeah. 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 Create more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I want to know what mortality, moments of mortality in your life have, have done for you. And by that, I mean the question of death. You, you worked in hospice. Mm -hmm. You've had a very close relationship with death. You're, you can tell a lot of the stories as well, but you've watched both of your parents die now. Mm -hmm. You took care of your sister at mm -hmm. a young age when she, you were in your 20s or 30s mm -hmm. when she passed away. Um, your grandmother passed away with you in the home or you came home to find her body. Um, and then you've had three episodes of cancer. Jeez, I know. Through. Yeah. More than most people I know, I, I think. I mean, I think ultimately yeah. we all get to a phase of life where we all of our, our friends are yeah. dying. We've lost our parents and now all of our friends are dying. And, and that's where my dad is mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Where a lot of the phone calls he's getting is about failing health and people dying. And yet from a very early age, you've had this, mm -hmm. this partner. Yeah. In life. Yeah. So I, I would just, um, say I've had an excellent relationship with death. Mm. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so because I came home from old third buddy, grade, old pal. Oh yeah. Not afraid too much. Um, but because I came home from school in the third grade when I was eight years old and found my grandmother dead, um, 
And having not experienced death, I had no idea what this new and different sensation was. I had the opportunity to explore being alone with her for an hour. Um, And that exploration was so quiet and peaceful, non-judgmental, no emotions whatsoever from hysterical adults or other people that I have never been afraid to be with people who are dying. Um, It doesn't mean it's not sadness. I grow up, I don't have emotions, but I look upon the opportunity to be with someone near the end of life as a real important brief friendship. Um, All bets are off. When I began to work, well, let's see. I began to work with hospice because my sister died when I was 32. She left three children, and she uh, came back to California from her home in Texas to live with basically my mother and me while we cared for her. And part of that care involved getting hospice. Because I'm, again, this outlier who tends to be fairly intellectual about things, I had researched hospice and the value and tried to bring them into my mom's home to get the help we all needed. And having experienced that help taught me what great value it is. Um, And so I got my own training as a hospice patient care volunteer. Um, And what I realized when I was doing that is that as people are beginning to let go their lives, they have all this baggage from their whole life and every relationship they've had. And unless they're smart and with it like you, they've waited to the very end to begin to deal with some of this. It all has to do with families visiting or not visiting or you're not allowed here and this and that. And the poor person is just you know, in pain and letting go. So that's what drove me to get my master's in in family therapy so that I could actually be of the greatest value to people in hospice. Of course, naturally, the minute I did that, I got cancer myself (laughs) and got to deal with all all this death and dying stuff at a new level. And what I have to say is, so my first real experience with feelings of mortality was when I got cancer and, and I sat there many nights thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my kids are only, I don't know, 19 and 21, and well, I haven't seen them married, I haven't seen them had kids, oh, that would be awful, but okay, well, that happens to a lot of people, and well, then there's this, and there's that, and the pain, well, yeah, but they're pain meds, well, then there's this, and what I realized my worst fear was I would be alone, and I didn't want to be alone when I died. And then I realized, well, how could I possibly be alone? There's a hospice worker out there and they do vigils and somebody would sit with me. So what is there really to be afraid of? You know, this is just something we all have to go through. It is a passage. It is the final passage of the existence that we know as living on earth. And so I got through all those treatments and, and then I got my five years and got my badge. And then imagine my surprise three years later when the cancer I had came back. But new and different. And, and a new primary is always better than a, uh, 
anything coming back. Um, <laughs> so when I took my new primary and got a new what does that mean? Body a job. New primary. A new primary means you get the same kind of cancer, but in a different spot. Oh, and good. the mutation is brand new. Oh, thank goodness. So it's a new primary. It's not the same cancer that's back. It's, it's in a, a new, new spot. Yes. It could be the same brand, but in a new geography, which makes it brand new. Okay. Right. So um, it's not a recurrence. Hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> got that all taken care of. Got a new life, um, a new body style. And dealt with the emotional trauma of that. But um, then two years later, I got a different cancer. And I tried very hard to get it diagnosed. But um, much to my chagrin, it took eight months. And by then, I had a more serious cancer than I'd ever had. And that was really scary. And that was the one that um, really made me question, would I die now? And... um, um, interestingly, I got through the horrible, horrible, horrible chemo and radiation. And, and after that, I got together with a friend of mine who'd had cancer with me, I guess, 14 years ago. And she said, oh, my gosh, in her little Minnesota way, oh, well, I just can't believe you've had cancer three times because, you know, when you get cancer, they're just you just realize there are things you have to change, right? And you just do it. So I can't imagine what you would need to change now. And I went home thinking, change? You mean I could change something? You mean I didn't have to recover from cancer and just step right back into everything I'd been doing like I had the first two times? And so... That was now six years ago, and I have changed a lot. And I think I feel better, and I look better, and I love my life, and I have changed to the best degree that I can. Being a human doing to being a human being, appreciating so much. And when I get my doubts, which anybody who's had cancer will have doubts all the time, every twinge of pain could be a recurrence um, or a new primary. But um, at this point, um, my family's in pretty good shape. I'm in pretty good shape. Maybe this is all God's going to give me to see. And if it is, I'm going to be okay dancing out. But I will go dancing out. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't fear... Dying itself, I um, I fear the process still, but again, there are drugs for that, and I fear that um, the way people have a hard time handling it and they pull away. Um, but I know that there are new friends at the end. There are new relationships. There are people who will come. I have a friend right now who has um, bile duct cancer, and. I met her in my spin class, and uh, or I saw her in my spin class, but I met her around her cancer. So I communicate with her, I talk with her, I send her cards, and I will be her friend until she dies because I know the value of that. It's worth it to me. Mm-hmm. That's kind of who I am. I'm harmony, you know? And you can look at it saying I never really asserted myself, I never did enough, or but... Part of the value of me in the lives I've chosen to attach to is to be a beautiful harmony. Yeah. And I feel good about it. 
You sing a great harmony, that's for sure. <laughs> we did that around the kitchen. And you've learned to follow quite well. I'm so learning to follow. Floor. Following is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you want to see for me in my life? Here's a man that you spent years trying to lead hand in hand from infancy into manhood and then set sail into life and I'm 35 now and you've watched largely from afar for the last mm-hmm. 15, 20 years. What would I want? Okay, this is the Santa's wish list. That's what right. I want is for you to feel safe to come back closer and also to find your soulmate. And feel, taste, hear your juju juice and trust it. And find the person who will help you keep your balance. Whatever that is. And a baby or two wouldn't be bad. (laughs) But... Maybe that's asking too much. Sneak that in at the end. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I always have to. No, that's no, great. No, but it's, it's about you finding what you need, but trusting it. Taking that chance. Are you happy with the man you see in front of you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. I see a big change. I feel a different hug. Mm. That's what a woman needs. It's a good hug. And she can do almost anything. I got plenty of them for you, Ma. Hey, bring it on. All right, last thing I want to ask you Mm -hmm. is about a challenge or a request that you would have for anyone listening. Perhaps it's about the problem that you see as most important in the world. But what you would, if you'd send people home to think about one thing or do one thing, in the next week or have one type of conversation, what, what would that be? I would ask you to go home and think about three significant interactions you've had in the last week. Interactions for which you may find you need to apologize for some part of and pick up the phone or write the letter, or make the coffee, date, and open it up and deal with it somehow to lighten it from you. All right. You heard it, folks. Mama, it's been a pleasure. And a pleasure, too, for me. Wow, that got awkward at points. And I think that's a really good thing. That is a sign that we both got a bit outside our comfort zone. I know I locked up a little bit. I got uh, got a little nervous talking about some of those things with my own mother. And I really do think that is good. Um good for growth, you know, yep, 
You can't find her on social media. Don't try. She's too busy winning dance competitions to mess around with the Facebook and the Instagram and try to create a brand or anything like that. But send her some love in the universe. You know, send a little prayer to her. Thank you for that. Thanks, as always, to my sound guy, Joe Corey, at Joe underscore Corey. And uh, thanks to my music man, my fratello in Palermo. Thanks to Ali Chino, who does my music. Find his jams at www.aulichino.it for you gringos. That is spelled A-U-L-I-C-I-N-O, pronounced Aulichino. And if you like this, rate and review it wherever you listen to the podcast. Give it five stars, even if you think it's worth three. You know, if you expect me to be five-star worthy, treat me like I'm five-star worthy. And I will grow into that expectation, I promise you. So let's, that'll be a little experiment. Give me five stars, even if you think I'm a three-star performance. And if over time I don't become a five-star performance, we'll say it failed. If I do, we'll, we'll give you full credit. So let's start that. And to finish, my challenge for you, directly from the, from the mouth of my mother, is this. Go find, go sit and think and contemplate about three interactions or relationships in which you want to apologize. And she didn't say this, but I'll say this. This could even be to yourself to start. And then make the courageous leap to do so. Make a phone call. Write an email. Write a handwritten letter. If it's to anyone, especially if it's to yourself and you want to apologize. And do that. Make that your goal for this week. That's my goal for this week, to sit down and do this exercise. Thanks for being with me on this journey. Hope you're out there on your own, chasing wildly. Talk to you soon.